Good morning, everybody. Welcome to February. Um, oh, and, and class. So today, uh, we're going to look into God's response to Job, which is my favorite part of the book. It's super cool. And God gets kind of snarky. Um, but first, I'm, I'm going to be, I want to tell you guys about something. I'm going to be kind of real with you guys for a minute and try not to start crying so I can keep talking. But a uh, weird thing happened to me last Tuesday. I was riding my bike to work. And um, I've been going through a lot of things recently with health stuff, coming back up and re-diagnosis of weird stuff and all this kind of thing. And I was having a pretty down morning. I was really super depressed. And on my bike ride to work, I was listening to some dumb podcast, as I often do, so I kind of don't have to think about things. Am I the only person who does that? I listen to something stupid so I don't have to think about real things. I think that's probably what most of TV is. Um, I got to the section of the trail, on the Pooter Trail, that I, I call my happy place. This is not a picture from Tuesday, but it's another day. Um, and it's, it's near the intersection of LeMay and, and uh, Mulberry. And I decided to turn off the podcast and pray while I was writing, which is something that's hard for me to do lately. I think maybe I'm still kind of mad at God, and praying is kind of hard for me to do. Um, so I just prayed that I could trust God enough to start praying again. Because that's kind of what we've been talking about as far as how in suffering, God wants you to trust him. And so, um, and then as I was praying, one of those dumb spam calls came in from an unknown number, and I just ignored it. And you know on your phone, if, I'm not sure about Androids, but on iPhones anyway, if you're listening to something and then a call comes in and you end the call, the thing starts up again playing, right? Um... So, I, I, like I said, nothing was playing, and, and uh, after the call, after a, bit, a minute, I, I, I thought I heard something playing, some music, and, um, but I not, well, it wasn't my podcast, it was just some random song, and it was kind of quiet, so I listened really carefully, because it was really quiet out, outside, and I realized it was playing Lead Me to Rest by Acapella. And I haven't listened to that song in forever. Um, I don't remember the last time I heard it. But for some reason, that song was playing anyway. And so I stopped and opened up all my music apps. I'm like, which app is playing this music? And I had no music apps open. Like the little swipe down thing, nothing was playing. And I couldn't figure out, why is this song playing? I couldn't turn it up or down. The volume wouldn't work. And and I couldn't stop it because nothing was started, and and it was just playing out of nowhere. And so, as I rode through the trees along this beautiful river trail, I kind of I almost had no choice but to listen to the song quietly playing in the background, and as bawling as I rode to work, listening to the words, I was hurting all alone, and I was searching for a comfort I could find. With no direction, feeling down. My life was heading for a disaster till you turned me around. Nothing ever had been able to ease me. 
When trying to please me, it only pleased me less. But when I learned about the way that you loved me, had to put your honor above me, and you gave me rest. Lead me to rest, sweet Lord, lead me to rest. For my journey here, lead me to rest. The relief I've found from the burdens that have weighed me down, lead me to rest. Lead me to rest. And you can call it some weird software bug, which it probably was, because I work with software and the weird things happen. But out of the 7,000 songs I have on my phone, <laughs> that one played. And it's the exact song I needed at that exact moment when I was praying for, to help to God help me have trust Him. And I needed that reminder that in the midst of stress and pain and the worst suffering that you've ever experienced in life, God is there. And he will, it, there will be rest, but God is there. So let's pray before we get into class. Father, I pray that you will help us trust you all the time, but help us to trust you especially when we're going through difficult times. We may not understand it, but we know that you do. We love you so much, Father. Through your Son we pray, amen. Okay. No more crying today. Um, <clears throat> so last week we talked about wisdom a little bit more, and about how, although we have three books that we kind of consider wisdom literature, um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, really the entire Bible is a way to gain wisdom, and how important that is, because it's central to following God and living the way God wants us to live, because the number one, the first rule, the first job he gave humanity was to take care of the earth. And that's something that requires a lot of wisdom. And I talked about how this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you can really kind of think of that as a tree of wisdom because that's what knowledge of good and evil really is, is wisdom. And how God wasn't trying to keep Adam and Eve from wisdom, he was trying to keep them from their own idea of wisdom, getting the wisdom for themselves. Because he wanted them to get wisdom by following him and by trusting him and submitting to him. But this tree of, this tree of knowledge of good and bad or wisdom or whatever you want to call it kind of symbolizes them taking it for themselves. And that's what every sin that we have is, it really is. It's us doing what is right in our own eyes. Our concept of right and wrong comes from ourselves when we, when we think that we're right and God is wrong. And how that's kind of what Job was dealing with as well. He thought that he knew what was right and wrong. And and Job and his friends, really, all all of them and all the humans in the book, thought that they understood how God ran the world. They understood how, uh, better than God, what was right and wrong. And which is why Job is considered a wisdom book. Because if you you think that you're right and you, you chide God for doing the wrong thing, you're not showing godly wisdom, you're showing human wisdom. Um, and so, and then, and then we talked about how Elihu shows up and kind of out of nowhere, and he seems to, he's right about some things and he's wrong about some things, and he kind of tweaks this retribution principle that we talked about to say that not, it's not just what you do will get you punished or what you do will get you rewarded, but what you might do will get you punished ahead of time to keep you from doing the wrong thing. 
But ultimately, even that misses the mark of how God runs things. Um, because God doesn't run the world that way. And we'll get into what God has to say about it today. So today we're going to be talking about how God responds. In ch- It's chapters 38 through 41. So, so far in the book, God has been pretty silent. Except for the very, like the very beginning when um, they're in, the, in heaven and the, the challenger comes. But Job has repeatedly and with increasing intensity demanded that God grant him an audience. He wants to take his case to God because he's sure that if he just if God will just hear him out, then all the bad stuff will stop. And now God shows up, and Job gets more than he bargained for. And I absolutely love what God has to say. And there are two speeches here that God has, and the the I'll get into what the I'll summarize them at the end. I'm not going to summarize them at the beginning. That's weird. So it starts out. There's this storm, and it says, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And it says, and he said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. For, that's kind of all that God would need to say. <laughs> it's like, brace yourself like a man. You, you, you get ready. I, I, would, I would just pass out at that point. Um. And I'm not sure that it matters, but uh, commentators make a big deal about how everywhere else in the Bible, um, whenever God is referred to, it's always Elohim or some other term for God. And this is the first time Yahweh is used, is when he starts talking. Well, at the very, at the intro, when they're in heaven, Yahweh is used. But whenever anybody in the book refers to God, it's Elohim or El Shaddai, or something like that. But this is Yahweh. So Yahweh speaks from the, the storm. And then God kind of gives Job a tour of the universe. And it's kind of a tour of the universe as people at the time would have seen the cosmology of things as far as like literal pillars of the earth and the deep being held up with pillars and a firmament above and all that kind of stuff that I talked about in my Genesis class a while back. But he, he says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a, me- a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and, and the angels shouted for joy. I, I mean, he just kind of keeps asking these rhetorical questions of Job. And then he gets into, it's like he goes from the cosmos to kind of the weather who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water the land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Notice how he points that the rain falls even where no one lives. And this whole time, it kind of reminds me of Mark 5 when Jesus says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. It's like God's point is, the way, the way the world works, it's not dependent upon being good or bad, or even if there are people there. I'm going to run things the way I want to run things. I mean, he doesn't say it, but he's even making it rain on planets that we don't know anything about, and there are things that are happening in this universe that are not... You're not the center of the world, Job. It's not all about you. It's not about, all about your life and your, your behavior and, and what you get or don't get. I, I'm doing things the way I'm doing things. 
And he talks about the stars and the constellations. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? I mean, this whole thing is... I keep saying this, but you should read the whole thing all at one one time. But what, what is God doing here by going through all these cosmic examples, do you think? I think there are possibly multiple answers, so I'm not looking for one specific thing. Yeah, yeah. He, you're trying to comprehend what I'm doing, but there's so many other things going on. Yeah, Cindy. Yeah, God. He's, God is just making the point. He's all powerful and in charge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, big picture. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a large part of it. It's that. I think it's more than just saying, I'm powerful and you're not. Um, I think that a lot of what God is getting here is that the rules of the game are not what Job thinks that they are. Job and his friends think that they know how God runs things. And God is pointing out that that's not the case. This justice idea of, of the way they think that the things are structured is not how things are structured. And God is showing the complexity of like things that like can you can you do any of this stuff? Well, of course he can't do that stuff. Does he know any of this? No. Now I, I was putting to bed Noah to bed last night and I was kind of I was talking about what I was going to be talking about in class today. And uh he and I and I quoted some of this stuff and like do you know how stars are made? And I was like, "Yeah, science tells us how stars are made." I'm like, "Well, but do you know how like can you hang the clouds in the sky?" And I was like, "Well, we can Evaporate water and kind of make clouds. I'm like, stop it. <laughs> you know, like, which kind of made me think that the further we get with science, we look at some of this stuff and we're like, well, we could theoretically do some of this stuff or we technically know how this works or whatever. But the point is we still can't do this stuff. The, there's so much complexity in, in the universe. Like we, not just Job. Job is kind of a stand-in for all of us, really. Job... Is conv- has been convinced that the world is ordered a certain way and that it runs a certain way. But God is like, he just is emphasizing that it's ordered by him. And there's so much complexity, you can't even start to guess how things were really working. And God specifically makes the point that there's an order where thing, people think that there are, is not an order. Like like the snow and hail and the rain and the weather stuff, things that especially the ancient people had no clue how this stuff worked. They just thought it was the workings of the gods. But God knows how, that there is an order to this stuff. He talks about like the storehouses of hail that I, I keep for, for battle and all this kind of stuff. That like I have reasons for the things I do. There's a purpose. There's an order. And you don't have, you have no concept of that. Just emphasizing over and over how ignorant Job and his friends are that everything can, they think everything can be boiled down to simple rules. And the underlying message really for this in this section is it to, Job, to Job and to us is, is clear 
It's that you think you can do a better job of running the universe than I can, but you can't. Yeah, you, so you think you can be God. You think you can do this, but you don't even understand the basics. Forget morality and the retribution principle and punishment stuff. You can't even understand weather. So who do you think you are? And then God moves closer to our human experience, and he talks about some of the animals on the earth. It's like, almost like God is saying, okay, I get that you can't understand the stars and the weather and stuff, but maybe you can at least understand, like, donkeys and cows and stuff like that. Um, and so in chapter 38, he says, Do you hunt prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? And then chapter 39, he talks about a lot of animals. Chapter 39, he says, Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? I mean, he, he talks about lions, ravens, ibex, donkeys, the aurochs, which is extinct now, the ostrich, horse, and hawk. Once again, emphasizing kind of almost ad nauseum that as much as Job thinks he can do better, he doesn't even begin to understand the basics of how animals and things like that work. And then Job, God demands that Job answer him in chapter 40, the beginning. And then... and. Uh, Job says, Job answered the Lord, and he says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. I mean, what else can you say? Job's like, answer me. Or God says, answer me. And Job's like, I can't. I, I see now that I thought that I knew what's going on, but I really don't have an, a clue. Any Thoughts about this so far? It, it keeps going for a while. But. Yeah. Just one, you know, two maybe. So, you know, even if you break these things down into subsystems and get as low as like a razor blade, <clears throat> yeah. he's describing a universal system that all works together. Yeah. You know, so even when we go to the smallest thing, like how do squirrels, you know, hibernate, you know, the sun affects that. Right. And solar flares affect things, and the universe we're still figuring out how to affect dirt and rain, and you know what I mean. So, you know, even when you start to think, and, and I'm, I'm no, you know, science is not my enemy, but they do keep relearning things they thought they declared to be true in certain cases over yep. and over, and keep learning surprising things. And again, we're only studying one small component of the system. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's so, it's. Yeah, it's just like like gravity. Like if it was if this happened now, God would be saying, "So tell me what gravity is, or tell me about quantum physics." You know, like it's all this system and things that we've been observing for millennia, like gravity. We still don't know what that is, really. Yeah. Right. 
and then just keep, you know, and, and praise God that people are you know, splicing DNA and healing people, you know, yeah. because of his design and allowing us to be able to discover elements of it, but we are so, you know, I think we all can use this speech from time to time, you know what I mean? Yeah, we all can use the speech from time to time, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the more we learn, the 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 further the less we think we need God. Right. Yeah, it's like this. I talked about in my the my Genesis class a while back. The when we think we when 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 we don't understand something about the universe, we say, "Oh, that's God did that," and then we learn about how that works, quote unquote, naturally, and we're like, "Oh, well, God's not needed for that anymore." And it's like this God of the gaps is the term for that, is that God fills in the gaps of science, and then science fills in those gaps. You don't need God anymore. And I think this, you're absolutely right, David. This is is kind of emphasizing that you think you filled in the gaps, but then a month later somebody else proves you wrong. (laughs) I mean, even even if all the gaps are filled, there are things that you still don't understand about how this universe works as a system, how this all works together. And which emphasizes to Job, so, I mean, he's talking about the natural world, but this is, we're talking about somebody suffering spiritually as well as emotionally and all this kind of stuff, and it, it comes down to that as well. It's not just about the physical world working together, it's God knows how your w- world is working, just as much as he knows how all this stuff works together. Chuck? You know, I don't know about the rest of you, but I, I in my challenges in life, I very seldom come to this point because I've never heard God speak to me Usually I get stuck with telling God what he's supposed to be like, telling him what mercy is, telling him what, um, what grace is, telling him what, uh, what's right and what's wrong. And so it's, uh, it's interesting, not more than just interesting, it's quite a uh, humbling to read through this and apply it to our own lives and our own situations and realizing, yeah, God tells us, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Yeah, we, yeah. we are just like Job. We do a really good job of telling God how he should do things. Mm-hmm. And I think it's good to read this chapter one, these chapters once in a while and remind ourselves that we don't know the right way. Yes, Cindy? Yeah. Maybe we should put our hands over our mouths a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. You have two ears and one mouth, right? Um, So God goes into his second speech, starting in uh, chapter 40, verse 6. Starts off the same as the first. You know, he speaks out of the storm, brace yourself like a man and answer me. And then he directly addresses Job's improper opinion of his justice. And he said, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? which is what Job did, basically. He says, God's unjust, because I'm not. Do you have an arm like God's, and can, you hear, can your voice thunder like his? Um, and then God basically says, so you've, you've called my judgment into question. Would you like to run the universe for a day and see how it goes? In, in, the, in, in chapter, uh, I, I didn't have this on, on slides. In chapter 40, 10, verse 14, 10 to 14, um, yeah, here it is. 
No, not there. Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and, and honor and majesty. And then this is where he says, basically try to run the world yourself. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Basically, try out this retribution principle thing and see how it works for you. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. And so if, if you think you can make things work the way you think they should, be my guest. And, and the, the makes, it always makes you think of this poem by Shel Silverstein, God's Wheel. God says to me with kind of a smile, Hey, how would you like to be God of a while and steer the world? Okay, says I. I'll give it a try. Where do I sit? How much do I get? What time is lunch? When can I quit? Give me back the wheel, says God. I don't think you're quite ready yet. And, you know, in the poem, the guy's like, yeah, I'll do it. And God's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But in, in, in Job, God says, you should, you should try it. And Job's like, no, 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 not a good idea. But basically, God says, feel free to save yourself. But um, before you try to save yourself, check out these two cool monsters I got, Behemoth and Leviathan. Um, these two characters have caught the imagination of people for millennia. And... The opinions of what these things are abound. They, they, they even show up in Dungeons & Dragons, um, which I'm sure you guys are all like heavy players. Yeah. Um, and both, I, asked, I checked this with Hannah, both creatures are chaotic neutral, if you're curious, um, which is hilarious, as you'll see in a bit, the chaotic neutral thing. But what explanations have you heard for Le- Leviathan and Behemoth? Just curious. Dinosaurs, okay. Loch Ness monster. This takes. This doesn't take place in Scotland, but I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Hippopotamus and crocodile. Okay. I, this, this is a hippopotamus attacking a crocodile, which is hilarious to me. What else? Ancient beings that rebelled against God. Okay. Someone's been watching Supernatural, yeah. Okay, yeah, so a lot of your Bibles probably even say in their footnotes that this may be a, a, a hippo or an alligator. Um, and that, that's an idea that I, I found out has its root in a 1663 book by Samuel Bochart. Bochart. Um, he wrote this book called the Hierozoicon. And it's all in Latin, so I couldn't read it. But, um, sorry, how do you say it? Hierozoicon. And what, what it is, it's basically the, the compendium. Of, it's like a zoology book for all, the, all of the animals in the Bible. He like, went to the Middle East and did all this research and found out like, what, what, like when, what kind of lion is mentioned and all this stuff. And... He couldn't find anything in the Middle East that matched Leviathan and Behemoth, so he's like, well, the closest he could get was hippo and alligator. Um, but both of these identifications are problematic, as you may have guessed. Behemoth has a hippopotamus. Like verse 17, his tail swings like a cedar. That's not a hippo. Um, and some people think maybe an elephant, maybe that's his trunk, but there are other problems with that. 
Uh, verse 24, can anyone trap it and pierce its nose? Yeah, you can do that with both of those. Um, and like the Leviathan is the alligator. Once again, it doesn't quite fit. We, we can tie it down and pierce its mouth with the hook. Traders definitely do trade for its hide. We can pierce it with a spear. It also does not bring, breathe lightning and fire, which is a, a big concern. Um, it seems to act, and it seems to actually be describing a dragon, not something that actually humans would have known about. Some people, like somebody mentioned, um, dinosaurs. It comes up again. Again, this is problematic because huge dinosaurs and humans never lived together, millions of years apart. And there's also the issue of breathing lightning and fire again. Uh, dinosaurs didn't do that. But I. I don't really want to get caught up in the zoological identity because that's not the point that's of, of, this, of this passage at all. Um, this is, like I said, this is a wisdom parable. Uh, the, the question that we should be asking is not what is the zoological identity of, the, of Behemoth and Leviathan. The question we should be asking is what, are, what would people who originally read this book think that these things are? And what point is he trying to make? What point is God trying to make here? So the, um, the ancient people of Mesopotamia would have immediately seen both of these creatures as what we now can refer to as chaos monsters. Um, the chaos monsters is not good or evil. They just were. So when Dungeons and Dragons says they're chaotic neutral, it's dead on, which just means they're chaotic, like they're chaotic and they're not good or evil. And I don't know if that makes D&D biblical, but I'm not going to... I'll let you decide. Um, a chaos monster is a term for mythical creatures that the gods had to deal with in the, in the, before the, they could bring order to creation. Because the Mesopotamian idea of creation was less about making a thing out of nothing and more about bringing order to the to the universe and, and organizing things and making making those things have purpose and use. And the chaos monsters were like these sea monsters and other things that were in the way trying to bring chaos just for the sake of chaos. And um, the Babylonians uh, who worship Baal they they had a this story about Baal defeating the Leviathan. And so Leviathan is not something that just shows up in the Bible. It's, it, this idea is all throughout Mesopotamia. And Leviathan was a seven-headed uh, dragon. Jeff, does that sound familiar? It does. From Re- Revelation, it comes up again. Huh? Yeah, like Hydra, yeah. It's the seven-headed dragon. And um, it's even mentioned in... in uh, I put the slide in the wrong spot. Psalm... 74, there we go, one more, there we go. Uh, it was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it, its food, gave it as food to the creatures of the desert, so the heads of Leviathan. So even, even the Bible kind of refers to this concept of, just re, it's just referencing the mythology of, the, of the, the world around it. And once again, it's not, he's not, he's, he's using things, the author's using things that people would have known and would have immediately grasped the purpose of. He's not saying that this Leviathan was an actual thing that, that is around or, or he's not validating the mythology of the, the Baal worshippers or whatever. 
he's using this concept that people would have understood from the time to make a point. And that's something that happens a lot in the Old Testament, especially in Genesis 1, when God creates the world and it's described in a way that people would have understood the, the cosmology at the time, not in real science terms. Um, but the point of all of this is not it, real creature or not, okay? That aside, the point is the same. Um, the point being made is that, I mean, the pro- multiple points probably being made, as God often does in Scripture. But I think it's much more than just showing God's power, because he's like, hey, Job, can you put a leash on Leviathan and give it to your daughters for a pet? You know, it, once again, he's kind of saying, you can't control these massive beasts like I can. But beyond just saying that kind of thing, I think the best explanation, and there's lots of explanations for why these are in here, but the best one that I've came, come across is that Job is being compared to Behemoth and God is, is being compared to Leviathan. And so at Job and Behemoth, um, like a raging river does not alarm it, it's secure though the Jordan should surge against its mouth. Um, he starts off 440 verse 15 saying, look at the behemoth which I made along with you. It's like, you guys are kind of the same. And he talks about how the behemoth is content and well-fed, kind of like as you have been Job. I made him strong just like I made you. He's the first among its kind just like you are. He's cared for, he's sheltered, he's not alarmed by the raging river as you should not be. He trusts and is secure as you should be. He cannot be captured and trapped, which, to which you should also be invulnerable, and cannot pierce its nose. It's, it's, the word is that, that idiom is kind of like having a, the anger. Anger cannot be pierced, so you should not be subjective just to just getting angry at things. So it's not saying that Job is like Behemoth. He's saying that Job should be like Behemoth. If you're trusting God, and, and then, then when the, the waters surge against you, you're, it's not going to bother you. You're going to be able to withstand massive onslaughts of things, and you'll be able to stand, stand strong. And with Leviathan, it, it goes on about how Leviathan cannot be controlled, will not submit or beg for mercy, cannot be wounded or subdued, then this is kind of an outright comparison in verse 10. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to sin against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. And then he continues describing Leviathan. Um, You cannot force his mouth open to receive a bridle so you can't control him. Just like Yahweh cannot be domesticated. Dangerous when riled. Invulnerable. No creature has, is, is equal. He dominates the proud. Um, nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. Just like God. In other words, I'm not tame, Job. You think you can, can put a bridle in my mouth and control me and tell me what's right and what's wrong. But I want you to be stable and strong and taken care of and trust me like behemoth. And so don't, and, but don't think that you can tell me what to do, because I am more powerful and more and more uh, and stronger than you can even imagine. You know, if you can't do this stuff to, Le- he's not saying that I am Leviathan, but he's saying if you can't do this stuff to Leviathan, 
If you can't control it, then don't think you can control me because I'm more than you can handle. So this first, that's kind of the end of the, the, the second speech. The first speech is basically saying, quit thinking the way you're thinking, Job, because it's not right. You're, you don't understand the complexity of things. And the second speech is saying, this is how you should think. You should, you should act this way, and you should think through things the way I'm thinking through things. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. It's a massive red herring that's been thrown in there. In almost every class on Behemoth and Leviathan, it's, it, myself included, it's so easy to get caught up in where these dinosaurs, where these dragons, and we go off. And it's, it, it really gets us off topic, uh, even though that's an amazing topic. And that's why I like what you've done here is we've got to stick with the conversation why Behemoth and Leviathan. Yeah. And if there is a connection, where I'm going with that is if there is a connection, let's say, between Leviathan and the God of Chaos, how appropriate is that Job's life has been thrown into chaos. And, and here we are dealing with something that Job, pain, suffering, all of this stuff is bigger than you. It is so much bigger than you. You can't tame it. You can't understand it. This is beyond you. Um, and it, it's just so appropriate to where we're going with the text. And I have seldom been able to tame my mind to stick with that theme, you know, uh, that we're doing here. So I really appreciate what you're doing with that. Yeah, the the whole idea of the the chaos monster thing, it really does speak to the fact that um, Job has been thrown into a state of chaos. He thinks that, I mean, his life is chaos, and everything is turned upside down, and it, it's it's onslaught from every direction makes no sense to him. And by God bringing up these monsters of chaos that these that people would have un, like immediately uh, understood he's in he's doing several things one thing he's saying i'm power, more powerful than these one thing he's saying is um, don't think that you can control me because you can't control them and he's also saying i am above the chaos i control the chaos because in all of the, like one thing that's very different than the mythologies around the israelites at the time they all had this idea that these gods, like Baal, need to defeat the monsters of chaos before creation could happen. But every, every time Leviathan, for example, is mentioned in the Bible, it doesn't say anything about God trying, trying to fight it or defeat it or whatever. It's like God made this thing. God controls this thing. And, and it, God, this thing does what God wants it to do. It's basically saying that you may think that this is chaos, but I am in control of it still. Which is a, I mean, putting yourself back in their, in their time, that's a very powerful message. That the, the most scary, the most chaotic thing you can think of is something that is under God's hand and under God's control. And, so, and then, so when, when Job, the last thing he says is, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know, and the just the humility that Job finally gets to the point he gets to. He's like he doesn't he never apologizes for what he said. He doesn't like he has some big long speech once again. He puts his hand over his mouth. He's like I, I'm sorry. 
I, I, I didn't get it. Now, now I see what's going on. And a great quote from a um, commentary that I read said that Job questioned God's design, and God responded that Job had insufficient knowledge of God's design to do so. Then Job got, questioned God's justice, and God responded that Job ought to be content and trusting and that he should not be so bold as to think God can be domesticated to conform to Job's feeble perceptions of how the cosmos should run. God asks for trust, not understanding, and the cosmos is founded on his wisdom, not our justice. And this keeps coming back to this theme. God wants our trust, especially when we don't have, when we think we're in chaos. He's not saying... This is not this is not preclude God from punishing somebody for doing a bad thing right away, or rewarding somebody for doing a good thing right away. God sometimes does that. I mean, he, God is sovereign; He can do what He wants to do, but He's not constrained by the rules that we give Him. And whenever we are going through struggles or good times or whatever, we we have to really rein in this this knee-jerk reaction to tell God how he, things should be. Like, it's not fair, or I deserve that, or whatever. And it's hard to trust. Yeah, David. I think that ties in beautifully with the calling out that he called himself Yahweh at the beginning of this speech. Yeah. Uh, which goes back to Exodus 3, obviously, when Moses asked for his name. So there's a lot of theology on that. I'm just going to tell you what I, you know, this yeah. I am means a lot of things, or Yahweh means a lot of things. Yes. And I do what I want. Now, that sounds like really selfish in our culture. You know, I do what I want, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. A little bit. But we are made in his image. The minute we start defining what we think God ought to be, when his perfect nature isn't what we think it ought to be, or we we question, we don't think he works how he ought to work. We are starting to worship a God made in our image. And that is an idol and a false God. So, so when we don't let him define himself and we define how he ought to be, we are no longer talking about Yahweh. We're talking about this fictional thing that we are almost like Job saying, this is how you ought to have done this. This is how you, I would prefer you be. And, and it's, it's idol worship, meaning... We are no longer worshiping who God says he is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, yeah. now <laughs> you said before, I think it's okay to work through that. Right. Do you see what I, I, I yeah. don't think that part is necessarily sin. We learn that right. from God's word. And it, it's just not okay to stay there. Right. Just, you know, what I would say, if that makes sense. Yeah, by, by Job and his friends referring to God as other, using other terms, like the one who provides, the one who shelters, things like that. It's almost like saying, referring to, they're referring to God the entire book as what he gives to me, what he provides to me, and who he is as far as I see him. But when, he, when at the end, when Yahweh speaks out of the storm, he's saying, this is who I am, and I get to say who I am. You don't get to say who I am. And the point you made is great, that whenever we start saying what God ought to do or how he ought to be or how I think he ought to be, 
that's, we're starting to make him an idol and, and a false god, and that's not what we should be doing. Um, so next week we're going to look at the end of the story, Job's um, final, uh, like his, his, his uh, what's the word? Restoration, yes, that's the word. He's, when he's restored to what he had before and at the end of the thing. So uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks.